It's lovely to be here. I do recognize some faces, although usually I'm just seeing them in a little box via Zoom. Uh, someone came in, they, they, these weren't their exact words, but said, you look much taller than you do on Zoom. <laughs> So uh, anyway, it's lovely to see you actually in the flesh. Uh, thank you for that reading. You might want to keep your Bibles open at uh, John 13, although I do want to read a few other verses, first of all, that come from Luke chapter 22. Uh, let me just see if I can move that. I think it's bumping. In Luke chapter 22 from verse 7, uh, read this little episode. I'm, I'm reading from the NIV, so if you're used to the ESV, it might be ever so slightly different. In the NIV, it says, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and make preparation for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there and don't forget the towels. One or two are laughing. I don't know if the, the, it was on the screen. So if you were following, those last words are not actually in the text. All right, please do not take me out and stone me for adding to the word of God. But I just think it's a great phrase. And actually, it's not original. When I was, uh, used to teach in the Bible college, one of the principals once spoke on this passage. And that was his heading, don't forget the towels. And uh, I did speak to him afterwards and say, look, do you mind if I actually use that? I think that is so good. And you can almost imagine Jesus at least thinking that. I find that little episode that I've read to you very instructive. Um, I, I find it a little bit strange, uh, a little bit secretive, a little bit mysterious. You know, it's almost as though Jesus is saying, here is your mission, right? I don't know, some of you, you probably know the Mission Impossible films, there might be some people who are old enough to remember Mission Impossible. There was a series on the television, and uh, every week uh, someone would get this cassette. If you don't know what a cassette, play, a cassette is, <laughs> see someone who's over 40, and there would be this little message, and uh, they'd give all these instructions, and they'd say, your message, should you choose to accept it, is to do this. And here's Jesus, and he's saying, this is what I want you to do. You'll see a man with a jar of water. You follow him into the city. He's going to go into a house. You find the owner of the house. You're going to ask the owner of the house, where can we set up the Passover? He's going to show you upstairs. You'll find it all furnished. And uh, it's just really good the way that this is gradually um, unfolded. Except I wonder if you noticed who is told to do this. The other Gospels don't tell us. But in Luke, Jesus says, Peter and John, this is what I want to do. All right, Peter and John, these superheroes of the early church, all right? Peter, who, uh, when he's filled with the Spirit, he's going to get up on the day of Pentecost, and he's going to preach, and 3,000 people are going to get saved that day. He's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles as well. One day, he's just going to be walking along the street, and, uh, you know, God's power, God's Spirit is with him so much for the, for the glory of God. As his shadow touches people, 
they get healed. Wow. And then there's John, this extraordinary disciple who records in John 13, this, uh, his, um, uh, explains about what happens at the Last Supper. Great gospel, quite different from some of the other gospels. Later on, he's going to write three epistles. Then uh, he's going to be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And he's going to have this encounter, this vision with Jesus Christ. And then he's going to write the book of Revelation. Wow. And Jesus said, okay, lads, you're on kitchen duty today. And that's what it boils down to, isn't it? And I wonder how they felt. Whether they thought, hold on, Jesus. You know, we've been with you three years. Surely you realize that uh, we're the cream of the crop here. Um, and Jesus says, no, this is what I want you to go. Go and get the meal sorted out. So, of course, they obey Jesus, and uh, everything turns out exactly as Jesus says. And so I, I just imagine them getting into this upper room, and they're looking around, and as I said, it's been furnished, but they've got to think about what's going to go, what's going to happen at this last supper, at this Passover feast. They need to make sure they've got the lamb. It's got to be a special sort of lamb. The Old Testament's got lots of rules and regulations and um, uh, it's got to be a male lamb, one year old, without spot, without blemish, without defect. You've got to kill him very carefully. Don't break any bones. Um, when you serve it, serve it up with certain bitter herbs as well. Make sure the bread is unleavened bread, no yeast in it. All these little extra rules and things. Um, then there's the wine that they've got to think about. Oh, and then there's also the water pots, because in those days when people came in, they would have their feet washed, and I'll say a little bit more about that uh, afterwards. And I wonder whether, you know, what they're doing as they're preparing it, and then whether they decide on the place settings as well. Because later on, we read that John is sat right next to Jesus. And I just wonder whether they're thinking, mm, well, if you sit that side of Jesus, Jesus is obviously in the middle, I'll sit the other side. Where should we put Judas? On the end. I, I don't know about that, but you know, I just imagine these little place settings and uh, Judas gets relegated to the, uh, to the end. And so they set it all up and eventually the people begin to arrive. And I do wonder whether they all came in one go or not, whether the disciples were always together. Twelve's quite a big uh, crowd or whether they split up. Um, when I used to teach at the college, we'd have tutor groups, and sometimes we would have them to our home. My wife's named uh, Lynn. Uh, we had two small children uh, at the time. Uh, our home is not very big, so sometimes we would just hold it in the college, but so occasionally we'd have people who'd come round uh, to the home. And people would arrive in dribs and drabs, and Lynn was, you know, usually sorting everything out, and I'd be welcoming people, and people would come in. And some people had been before, and they'd know exactly what to do, and others would come in, and there usually weren't quite enough chairs because we'd moved them all into the dining room to try and squeeze people in. And uh, then some people would give you coats, and some would say, OK, I know where they'll go, and I'll put them in this bedroom. And other people, where, where, where's the bathroom? I need to use the bathroom. And all a little bit sort of disordered until eventually we all got ready and um, we'd sit down and we'd have a meal and uh, have a good evening of fellowship. And I just wonder what happened when the disciples arrived. You know, were Peter, James, and John always the special three? You know, with the with T-shirt, the transfiguration, I was there, you know. Um, and, and then did, did they all get on? Uh, Twelve people's a lot to get on. And of course, some were from very different backgrounds. There's someone called Simon the Zealot. 
Right here, if you like, was the Jewish Republican, wanted the land back for the Jews, which God had promised. And then there's other people like Matthew or Levi, who'd been a tax collector for the enemy, a collaborator with the Romans. Would he have got on? You know, you've got a couple of people called Judas. You know, did they? So anyway, eventually people come. And uh, eventually the meal begins. And I just wonder what's happening uh, as the meal begins and uh, people are waiting and they're talking and just starting to um, eat some of the food. And I just uh, envisage John. John, who's lying there, because don't forget, in those days, they didn't have chairs and tables like we do, but they would have a very low table and they would have benches and they would recline, they would sort of lie down on these benches and I just sort of imagine John there, and he's lying down, and all of a sudden there's a little bit of a funny smell, a bit cheesy or something, and he's thinking, that's strange, didn't put any cheese out. And then uh, he looks up, and he sees a dirty pair of feet in front of him. And then he realizes, my feet must be dirty as well, and they're next to Jesus. And maybe he sort of pulls his knees up and puts his uh, coat down. And I wonder what was going through his head and others as they begin to re began to realize no one had washed their feet. Now, as I said, things were very different in those days. Um, people would walk around just in sandals. Can I just say just sandals, not sandals and socks for you Christian gentlemen, right? Uh, sandals and socks, it's not a good fashion statement. Uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon, it's just a bit of helpful advice that I'm passing on. Uh, but they would, they would go around in their sandals, and of course, if it was dry, if it was a hot, you know, summer, during the, si the summer, their feet would get very dry and dusty. If it had rained, they'd get incredibly muddy. And uh, so when you went into a, for a meal, people, because you're lying down like that, they would wash your feet. I, I remember when I was young, you know, my mother always used to shout out if we were in the garden, uh, wash your hands and up to the table. You know, in those days, we always sat at tables, didn't have sort of uh, lunch on the, uh, the couch or anything or on trays and stuff like that. I wonder whether the uh, Jewish mothers used to say, wash your feet and up to the table. But no one had done it. And I wonder if the disciples are looking around and thinking, well, why hasn't someone done this? Well, it wasn't my job. And maybe Peter and John are thinking, well, we set the place up in the first place. So why hasn't someone else? What about Bartholomew? He's a disciple. What does he do? Never read of him doing anything. <laughs> Excuse me. Let me just... And then, all of a sudden, someone gets up and gets up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And it's Jesus. And I wonder what they felt when they saw that it was Jesus. Jesus, whom they had been with for three years. They had learned an awful lot of lessons from Jesus. And time and time again, Jesus had to repeat some lessons. Let me just read you a little passage and then turn to it from, from Mark chapter 9. This is Mark chapter 9, okay? They came to Capernaum, 
When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Let me read Mark chapter 10. Some verses in Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus is speaking in figurative terms of suffering and death. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been gathered. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, and Jesus is talking about himself there, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They were so anxious about who was going to be the best, who are going to be the leaders, who's going to be the chief of the leaders. And they're arguing about this constantly. And Jesus has to keep going over this same sort of lesson time and time again. And no one had noticed the towels. You see, one of the things that concerns me is these disciples, as I said, they'd been three years in the best Bible school you could get, with the best lecturer you could have, the best teacher, the best mentor, the best trainer. And I wonder if you'd ask those disciples to write a 3,000-word essay on servanthood, whether they'd have all gotten A+, whether they could tell you all about the Greek word for servanthood. But they walked past the towels. And it's Jesus that gets up. And can I say, it's quite astounding. When you read uh, John 13, verse 1, it says, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It's love that's going to lead him to the cross, and of course, beyond the cross, to resurrection as well. But although it leads to the cross, it starts with a towel. And can I just say, Jesus must have had far more important things on his mind than washing some people's feet. He is already, he knows what is going to happen. He has already talked about denial and betrayal. He knows that after this feast, they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to ask his disciples to pray, and they're going to fall asleep. He knows that Judas is going to turn up, and with this terrible kiss 
that is supposed to be a sign of loyalty and love. He is going to betray him. He is going to be taken away. He is going to be tortured all night. And the next day, he is going to be hung up on a cross. And on that cross, he is going to suffer not just incredible physical agony, but incredible spiritual agony as he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he becomes a curse for you and me, as he takes the punishment of our sin upon himself. And I think Jesus had a lot more to think about than just washing people's feet. But he does. Because as we've just read, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be a servant. And that is an incredible part of his nature. You probably know in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about Jesus who being God, in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, grasped hold of but made himself a servant. Because that is his nature. There's something in the nature of God himself that is a servant. And you will probably know I was joking about, you know, could the disciples, you know, tell us all about the Greek words. Actually, probably some of us know some of the Greek words for servant. Some of us will know that when Paul starts his letters, sometimes he says, I'm a servant or I'm a slave. The word doulos, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you know what the word deacon means. Deacon, or it means to rule the leadership, uh, rule over the church, to decide what people do, to organize everything, to be seen to be an authority. The word deacon, diaconus, means a servant. Uh, There's another interesting word in Romans chapter 12. Some of you might know that um, Paul writes and says, I beseech you by the mercies of God, beseech you for Jesus' sake, Give, up, give your bodies, make your bodies living sacrifices. And I was brought up with the authorised version. And in the authorised version, it says, this is your reasonable service. If you read the NIV, it says this is your spiritual worship. So what is it? Is it service or worship? It's the same. Because the Greek word latreia means worship and service. Worship is not just what we have done for the last 30 minutes or so by singing together. But worship is the way we live our lives, and worship is seen in our service. On Thursday night in the Arrow Zoom meeting, I was actually talking just um, about doing good. I mentioned this great verse in Acts chapter 10, where it's talking about Jesus, who was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Great. And so what do we expect? Well, we're going to read about his miracles. We're going to read about him casting out demons. And we do later in the verse. But the first thing that verse is, Acts 10, verse 38, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit in power and he went around doing good. Just doing good stuff. And that's part of our heritage. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains we're not saved by our works, we're saved by faith. Faith in God, which he gives us as well, which is, which is great. But it says, having been saved... It says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So the good works are out there. They're all part of God's plan. You know, sometimes people, what's the will of God? Well, are there any good works that we should be engaged in? One of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. You know, we're a Pentecostal church. Great to hear about your um, Holy Spirit Day with uh, the Alpha course and things like that. And there's all these gifts from the Holy Spirit. And there's the fruit of the Holy Spirit as well. One of the fruits is goodness as well. And uh, 
look at all those gifts. And, and as Pentecostals, we do tend to concentrate on the ones in uh, 1 Corinthians. There's others in uh, Ephesians, and there's plenty in Romans as well. And there's tongues and interpretation of tongues. And uh, there's prophecy and words of wisdom, words of knowledge, lovely. Miracles, uh, discerning of spirits, gifts of healing. That's only eight. There is another one in that list. Or we usually tend to faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I know it's talking about faith in a different way. Maybe we need a bit more faith. But you see, later on in that same chapter, Paul gives another little list. And he said, God set in the church apostles, great, prophets, teachers, those able to work miracles, those with gifts of healing, those able to help others. Wow. That's one of the gifts. You know, sometimes I meet people and say, I don't know what my gift is. Well, I want to suggest that all of you, all of us, can have that gift just to be able to help others. Are we servants? What is your ambition in life? What is your ambition, not in this life, but in eternity? Yes, you know, we all like to do okay financially and uh, educationally. Family is really, really important. But actually, at the end of the day, my ambition is just to hear a few simple words. Well done, thou good and faithful lecturer. <laughs> well done, thou good and faithful pastor. Well done, thou good and faithful administrator. No, none of those. You're all ahead of me. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is the most decisive moment for our eternities when we stand before Jesus having accepted his gift of forgiveness and what he has done on the cross. And uh, please, God, may we hear those words as well. Let me just read the end of this passage that uh, we looked at earlier in, in John 13. Let me read from verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put, his he, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So I want to make two comments. One from the beginning of that passage I just read. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes. Someone shared this morning about taking coats off. And they suggested, you know, when we take the coats off, we can feel the wind and the wind of the Spirit. Can I just suggest from here, Jesus took his coat off to be a servant. And maybe that's something that we can think about as well. But let me read that last line there, verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do we know these things? I want to suggest that we do. I want to suggest that the vast majority, if not everyone here, has probably heard a sermon on this passage or knows, a sermon, knows this passage. But Jesus says, I want you to do them. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done. 
Now, I sometimes joke, I, I've seen loads of seminars and talks and things about discovering the will of God, knowing the will of God. Sadly, I've never seen one that's called doing the will of God. But that's what it's got to end up with. It's no good just knowing, discovering. We've got to actually put it into practice as well. Um, sometimes I, I, I say in college, I say, remember what Jesus said to his disciples right at the end? Go and make disciples of all, nat- of all nat- nations, teaching them everything I have commanded you. That's not what Jesus said. If you read it carefully, Jesus says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, teaching them to obey. See, there's actually a world of difference between teaching people, you know, and going through the Bible and saying, this is what Jesus did, this is what Jesus said, Jesus, but actually having an impact. Please, God, may your spirit be at work. So we don't just fill our heads with teaching, but we actually do stuff, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. I remember being in a men's breakfast um, and someone used the phrase, excuse me, Christianity works. And I thought, oh, that's good. Because actually it's ambiguous. You can understand that a couple of ways. Christianity works. It does work. It's effective. It's true. It's real. But actually Christianity works. It's got to be worked out. It's got to be engaged in real stuff. Remember what James said. He said, you show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith through my works. You might have heard that little phrase, if being a Christian was a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Is this something that's actually put out in real life? And, um, you know, we've got to do stuff. And sometimes it just needs to be small things. It might be insignificant things. A few fish and uh, some tiny bit of bread became an awful lot in Jesus' hands. I was, just the other week, I was thinking uh, about a thought that came to me back on those terrible days of 9-11. I, I don't know if people here remember 9-11, those planes crashing into the Twin Towers and uh, all the rubble coming down and the devastation and then those suffocating clouds of cement dust and gradually it cleared, and there's just rubble, an awful pile left. And I remember seeing people picking up stones, trying to move stones, just with their hands. And I know this sounds terrible, but my thought is, why are you bothering? What on earth can you do? You need to wait for the JCBs and the bulldozers and the heavy lifting equipment to come in. But I dare to believe that actually through those actions of people just using their bare hands, some people were saved. And the other day, as I was thinking about that, it suddenly came to me that there were people on their knees using their hands. And we need both. You know, sadly, there are some people there just engaged in good works and there's no spiritual element to that. Sadly, we want to avoid the other extreme that, uh, you know, we're just engaged in prayer, but we never actually do anything. And uh, this made a great difference. And little things can make a difference to people. You know, sometimes it's just a card, a letter, a lift, a bit of shopping, a gift, daring to go and say, look, I'm sorry. Even if we've got to go and say, look, I'm sorry, let's start again. Can we have a clean uh, slate? 
let's go forward from here. I remember the, the, the last couple of churches that I pastored both had links with Romania and uh, teams would go out to Romania. And I remember a, a very godly woman, when she was a, a youngster, she was, she'd gone over to Romania and they were working amongst orphans. And there was another young girl who she was very friendly with and has maintained that friendship uh, with her. And she, I, I don't know if she was just about to become a Christian or just had become a Christian. And uh, she said to this young, young girl, she said, I, I just really struggle with thinking about God as father. I've never known my father. And this godly girl, I, I think she was had a moment of inspiration. She just said to that girl, she said, would it help if you think of me as your sister? And we'll work this out between us. I just thought I was so, so good. And later that week, this girl who had taken a spare pair of shoes over found she didn't found the Romanian girl didn't have any shoes and she didn't do this out of any you know look at me because I you know I I know I know this girl she said have my shoes I want to suggest it's stuff like that that is probably worth a hundred times as much as a sermon like this because it impacts people's lives and it changes them and you see Jesus didn't just clean people's feet I want to suggest he refreshed them. You know, you know what it's like sometimes, you know, if you've been out and you come home and you, especially in the summer, you're all sticky and your feet are, and you, oh, I'm just going to go and wash my feet. And there's this refreshment. And may God help us to bring refreshment into other people's lives, simple acts of kindness. We're not told all the details, but it seems to me that there was one person whose feet didn't get washed that night. It was Jesus. Because each of those disciples, in not serving one another, they missed out on the opportunity of washing Jesus' feet. Remember what James says, the way you act amongst yourselves, that reflects your relationship with God. Of course, back in Luke 7, there is a woman who is a sinful woman. And Jesus had been invited to a Pharisee's house and this woman comes in, and she just breaks down. She cries and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. And she pours this ointment over Jesus. Looking forward to meeting her in eternity. And I dare to suspect that there might be a question that uh, is, uh, she's asked hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of times. Oh, are you the lady that washed Jesus' feet? And she is. She had this incredible privilege of that, and I think will be remembered for all eternity for what she did there. So it has been really great to be with you this morning. It's great to share in your worship. It's great to hear people's testimonies. It's great to hear the word of God. But can I just encourage you amongst all that, let's not forget the towel.